A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, standing in for your regular host Helen Lewis. On this week's episode, George Eaton and Stephen Bush talk about UKIP and Labour's new policy on tuition fees, Ian Steadman brings us exciting new developments from space, and Stephanie Boland tells us about the Feminist Library. going to start off with UKIP. Remember them, they used to be in the news all the time, whatever happened to them. Uh, our political editor, George Eaton, is here to tell us more about that, as is a newcomer to the New Statesman staff, Stephen Bush, now editor of The Staggers. Welcome, Stephen. Hello. So, George, you've written about uh, UKIP in your column this week, saying that while we haven't heard perhaps quite so much of them in the last few weeks, uh, we shouldn't write them off yet. Yes. I mean, I think there are two points to make. I mean, the first is that they've peaked at a level that few people initially thought possible. Uh, they're still in double digits in most polls. They, of course, have two MPs. Um, previously, people didn't expect them to have any MPs before the general election. Most Lib Dems privately expect to finish behind them on votes in the general election. Um, so UKIP are going to do significantly better than they did in 2010 when they only won 3%. Um, but I also think that those who see UKIP as a, an electoral shooting star, something that's just there, uh, something that just burns out, um, underestimate the potential for long-term growth. So I think if, if Labour win, then you can see how UKIP, having finished second in a swathe of northern constituencies, will be the natural receptacle for discontent, mm. both over immigration and the lack of an EU referendum, and also over austerity. And they've positioned themselves as a more economically populist party in recent months. And then in the case of the Conservatives, if, if, they, if they remain in power, UKIP will be thrust to the centre stage again as perhaps the only party campaigning for an outvote in an EU referendum. And even if David Cameron secures an in-vote, um, he's not going to regain any significant power over immigration. Um, he, he's not seeking to end the free movement of people um, because he knows that Germany wouldn't tolerate that. Um, and we've seen in the case of the SNP and the Scottish independence referendum that being on the losing side in a referendum is no barrier to further advancement. And then if the vote is out, then, of course, in one sense, UKIP has lost its raison d'etre, which is to uh, campaign and ensure British withdrawal from the EU. But I think UKIP has evolved now from its anti-federalist origins into a catch-all protest party. In fact, um, Farage once considered renaming the party just as the Independence Party, 
Um, and although I think it's unlikely that they'll have a similar rebranding in the future, that title does accurately describe the role they now occupy. Independence from anything. From anything. From, from anything the establishment. That you from, don't currently like. Yes. Pretty much. So, um, Stephen, tell us a bit about why we suddenly feel like we're not hearing about UKIP all the time. It's partly then because first past the post massively disadvantages UKIP, yeah, even, even more so than the Liberal Democrats. Uh, and actually a lot less than the Greens, who need a much smaller national vote share to start picking up seats. Um, they have to go a bit quiet because Nigel Farage is knocking on doors in Thanet South, pressing the flesh, I'm going to say kissing babies and create a horrible mental image in the minds of our podcast listeners. Um, yeah, he's having to do all of that kind of thing and he is still their, their, their one major draw, really. Mm. And so they've gone quiet because he's in Thanet pressing the flesh. So uh, the two MPs that you mentioned, Georgia, Mark Reckless and Douglas Carswell, are both Tory defectors. Mm. Can we expect after the election to see what I sort of think of in my head as kind of native UKIP MPs, i.e. people elected initially on a UKIP mm. ticket? Well, I think um, they'll be fortunate to win more than six seats, including the mm. the one the two they already hold at, at the general election. And that is because their vote is very inefficiently distributed. So there are plenty of constituencies in the north and the south where they'll finish second. Of course, under first past the post, that counts for nothing. Um, but it's worth noting that I mean, the biggest spur to UKIP success to UKIP success would be electoral reform. And such is the potential perversity of the general election result that MPs from all parties are beginning to ask, could first past the post reasonably endure in these circumstances? I think it's unlikely that it will change, but I think the question is now relevant in a way that didn't seem likely a few years ago. And given that, given that there's a likelihood we'll see not only a coalition government, but also a kind of coalition opposition, um, Stephen, where might UKIP fit into that? Have they given us any indications? Um, the interesting thing is that what Farage has sort of quite cleverly done is he set a price for UKIP support, which is a short, sharp, quick referendum very early on in the parliament. He's effectively all but ruled out any kind of support for Labour, though, at the same time, you know, when I don't quite understand now what his room for negotiation is. And there's a slightly strange thing with a lot of the smaller parties at the moment. Then they go, here, here are the things we want. And then they go, but I would definitely wouldn't do this. And you go, well, then what's your negotiating point? It's a bit like the SNP saying we won't, put, we won't support a Conservative government. It actually makes it very easy for Ed Miliband to go, OK, well, next person then. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, you mentioned Labour there. Whilst we're thinking about UKIP on the far right, on the other side, uh, we've got Labour finally going to tell us something about tuition fees. George, what is it? Yes. So Ed Miliband first declared in 2011, um, one of his first big policy announcements, that he'd like to reduce uh, the headline rate from £9,000 to £6,000. And at the time, that was one of those uh, announcements that... uh, fell under the the rubric what we do if we win government now Um, but it's now been adopted as a manifesto commitment so labor will reduce um, fees by three grand to six thousand and it will fund that cut um, through curbs on pension tax relief uh, for the wealthy so this is not only i mean we know how controversial tuition fees was um this is but this is not just trying to kind of cement those those lib dems who left the party disaffected about that and came to labor this is presumably also uh, a statement about where labor stands on this intergenerational inequality taking from the old to give to the mm, young absolutely i mean miliband has this phrase the british promise the, the belief that 
the next generation uh, should or must always do better than the preceding one. And, and he says that's now under threat. And so the, the, the policy is designed to symbolize his commitment to generational equality. Um, but politically, tuition fees are seen as one of the few issues that really achieve cut through. And obviously, we saw that in 2010 um, when the Lib Dems uh, polled very well among young people um, as a result of the pledge. And um, we, we saw that obviously with the huge protests when they were when they were tripled to, to £9,000 and the extent to which uh, Clegg's failure has um, has made it impossible for him to, to win a fair hearing since. Um, so I think if, if Miliband feels he, that he can he can sort of achieve some of that political significance, but uh, in, in a positive way, then uh, the Labour will be in a good position because they do need policies that fire up that crucial left liberal section of the electorate, um, some of whom obviously have gone to Labour from the Lib Dems, but some of whom are now flirting with the Greens. Will this proposition be uh, radical enough to do that, do you think, Stephen? Um, I'm not sure... Partly because the the big problem with the politics of tuition fees is mostly what you're doing is you are talking to a generation of students which is currently uh, has the re- the risk of paying them, which is angry about it. A generation above them which is paying it already and is going, oh, actually the roof hasn't fallen in. Oh well. Uh, so what? Who is it actually a a sop to? It's some students who haven't arrived yet who currently can't vote will ultimately have a slightly smaller amount to repay in the fullness of time um, for what's actually quite a hefty amount of money to spend uh, for 2.5 billion it, I suspect it's not actually going to get as much electoral purchase as Labour might hope unless the symbolic value mm. of it cuts through but those kind of things are nebulous on the doorstep and harder mm. to communicate right um, and also I suppose there's there's the the potential pushback of it was Labour who introduced tuition fees in the first place right Yes, and of course the danger is that um, you alienate those on the right or those in the centre who say, well, actually, uh, contrary to predictions, the number of students from poor backgrounds has continued to rise, um, while also failing to satisfy those on the left who simply want fees abolished. Um, Because after all, a a fee level of of £6,000 is still double the level that it was um, at the start of the parliament. So the danger really is that Labour once again is neither seen as credible enough nor radical enough. Which I think is something we're going to be saying quite a lot in the next few weeks and months, right? That this is this is the, the sort of trap that Ed Miliband finds himself in. Absolutely. Um, although in his defence, I mean, some would say if he's being attacked from the left by, say, Unite or from the right by... Uh, uh, the Blairites, then it then it proves he's roughly in the right place. But and... that only makes sense if you triangulate your your opinion based on the Labour Party, which represented less people at the last election than there are currently people who are clinically obese. I mean, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's not it's not a particularly. It, it's basically going well in terms of these two niche groups. I think I'm more normal than these two niche groups, which is probably true, but it's still pretty abnormal. Mm. Yeah. So he's he needs to like you were saying with the who this policy is for he needs to go out and find the extra constituency right yeah mm. i think the big challenge for miliband is really what do you stand for that we know we know what you're against that you wanted to overturn new labor we know you're not going back to old labor uh what is your labor and mm. i think that is something miliband who has spoken of how he has greater intellectual self-confidence than Cameron who feels very sure of what he stands for but there's a huge gap between that self-impression and the public's impression of him when they often don't see him as standing for anything 
And that's something that you heard Scottish voters say a lot during the referendum. Um, I mean, his priority, if Labour are to win, is to, is to change that very quickly. Yes, we can't. We can't elect him based on his feelings. Okay, thanks very much, George and Stephen. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, Ian Stedman is going to tell me about series. No, series. Series. I can't even say it. I'm really sorry, podcast listeners. Series. Um, I want to make it sound like a breakfast series. But I forgive but... you. It's not a very well-known place in the solar system. Yeah, so this is space, by the way. This, this is, is space. what we're talking about. We've all heard of Pluto, whether it's a planet or not, it's not. Uh, but now we're going to learn about a new area of space. Tell Ceres, us, Series, or an old area of space, but one which is coming back into style or fashion. Um... Because there is a space probe from NASA called Dawn. It launched in 2007 uh, to go look at the two largest objects in the asteroid belt, which is between Mars and Jupiter. Uh, Vesta, which is already gone to and orbited around, which is just, imagine a big asteroid, big lumpy asteroid, that's what it is. Rock, right? Rock, yeah, big rock rocky, yeah, yeah. It's the second largest in the asteroid belt. But the largest thing in the asteroid belt is big enough to be considered not just an asteroid, but a dwarf planet. It's a place called Ceres. Um it was first discovered in 1801 when a lot of astronomers at the time thought like, oh, there's this big gap between Mars and Jupiter. There must be another planet hidden there that we haven't seen yet. And uh, this Italian astronomer, who I unfortunately forget the name of, I believe his name was Piazzi, but someone will probably correct me for that. Uh, he, he spotted it and everyone, for, for most of the 19th century, people thought of the solar system as having nine planets, but this was well before they discovered Pluto. They thought that uh, Ceres, well, Ceres was, the, was the ninth planet. Um, between Mars and Jupiter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But over time, you know, we got to see a bit more and realised it was actually quite small. Um, it's about the same diameter as Texas is across. Um, so it's not huge. It's like it's like a, a, a pretty mediocre-sized moon if it was orbiting around Jupiter, for instance. Um, and for many years, that's kind of all we knew about it. That it was just like the biggest thing in the, in the asteroid belt. It's about a third of the mass. But um, it is quite an interesting place because the asteroid belt in itself is what the rest of the solar system was like uh, before it formed into planets because you know there was a there was a debris field which the sun was in the middle and then all the debris kind of coagulated together and formed planets but jupiter's so big that anything in the asteroid belt that was clumping together couldn't form a planet um so you have uh that's why ceres is a dwarf planet it is it's round it looks like a little moon it's got craters and stuff on it but um even though it's rounded under its own gravity, it hasn't cleared its uh, orbits, basically, of other stuff. And that's the definition of a dwarf planet, like Pluto. Pluto is also, it looks like a planet, because it's big enough to kind of be round and look planet-like. 
but it's not really one because it's not the only one of those out there. Uh, and this is, I mean, we all remember when Pluto got downgraded. It was, you yeah. know, it's somehow a weird sense of nostalgia for some people. Yeah. Of age. You know, I, you know, you were born after Pluto wasn't a planet anymore. Yeah. How young some are people, you? Some people seem to take it as a personal slight, which I've never really understood. It's that like, is really strange, you know, getting yeah. offended on behalf of Pluto. But this, this idea of um, the names for things evolving yeah. is just part of science, right? Yeah, as it's we, just part of science. As it's we just discover more. I mean, it's, it's it's good that they decided on doing that because at the same meeting that they did that, they also, um, I mean, everyone knows what an asteroid is and everyone knows what a comet is, but there was never any actual scientific definition of that. Uh, there were just lots of different stuff flying around the sun that we didn't have names for. I'm not sure I do know the difference. What is the difference? Uh, well, we used to think that asteroids were kind of nearer to the sun and rocky and comets were further away, but then kind of looped in longer and were icy. But nowadays we'll keep finding asteroids that are really icy and comets that are quite rocky. So it's, they're kind of blurring. And anyway, that's not those aren't scientific terms. The scientific term for those things is small solar system body. That's basically anything that isn't a planet, a dwarf planet, a moon, a, or a satellite. Anyway, to get back to Ceres, uh, because this is the key thing, um, for many years, we only the best photo of Ceres that we had was taken by the Hubble Space Telescope, and it was a really low-resolution image um, because of the weird way that space actually works like it's actually we think of the Hubble Space Telescope's images as being really amazing like stars far away and stuff but because of scale we don't really realize that um you know you can point the Hubble Space Telescope at Mars or Ceres or Jupiter and you don't actually get very good images because mm. it really is hard to take photos of stuff far away um but in this original photo from the Hubble uh it's very low res it's very um kind of compressed it's all like p big pixels but one of these big pixels in the top left was really bright, almost white, and everyone was like, what the hell is that? That's Is there, like, a bright spot on this mm. dwarf planet? And overnight, um, I was just uh, just looking at this from NASA because Dawn's been getting closer. It's due to get there and go into orbit around it and take loads of photos and survey it on 6th of March. So it's almost there, and it's been taking photos as it gets closer and closer and releasing them. And the one that they released last night, they finally got a good glimpse of what this bright thing is. And it's like there's a crater with these two very bright small spots in it that almost look like lights. And no one knows what the hell is going on. It's amazing. Like, this doesn't make any sense. As far as we're aware, Ceres is an inert body. It might, that might mean it has volcanoes or a liquid core, which would be really rare for a, what is an asteroid. Mm. Um, we've also spotted a couple of years ago what looked like water vapor going from a surface. It might even have an atmosphere very tenuous but basically this place is way more interesting than we thought it, it had any right to be um there's and, the potential for life there's all kinds yeah, of stuff it, there it, yeah looking at um its composition and density it has a, a higher proportion of its mass is taken up by water than by rock than compared to earth so it actually along with sort of the moon of uh, moons of jupiter like europa um it's become a really strong candidate for finding alien life microbial life you know you can find little green mm. men but you know, if there is a liquid ocean under the surface, which is entirely possible now from what we seem to be seeing, um, yeah, it, it much better than Mars, for instance, where, you know, we might find fossilized remains of life, but actual living life. This place that was, you know, um, for most of the 19th century, we thought this place was a planet and school kids would have grown up like Pluto for us, knowing it as a planet and then it's kind of forgotten. And now suddenly, hey, it's important again, which is quite nice. That's fascinating. So what we're saying is everyone, including me, should learn to say Ceres. Ceres. Ceres, yes. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ian. 
now Stephanie Boland is going to tell us about her recent visit to the Feminist Library, which I believe is in London near Elephant and Castle. Um, what What is the Feminist Library as opposed to another kind of library, <laughs> Stephanie? Um, well, the impetus behind the Feminist Library was originally to create a collection of materials relating to the feminist movement. So a lot of their stuff is kind of big, second wave, homemade DIY zines, mm. um, and then a load of kind of fiction from the 60s and 70s. Um, and now they're trying to expand to bring in more women's literature. Um, but the idea is to have a library that focuses on a history that's not put in traditional um, male-dominated mm. archives. Um, so if you go to your university library, chances are you will have a shelf on kind of feminist theory. Or and you'll, Women's history or whatever they call it. Women's history, yeah. and you'll have your butler and your Chris Daver, but you won't have the kind of um, broader background, and you won't have things by working-class women and women of colour, which mm. this library has made an effort to kind of integrate. Mm. So yeah, And this is something this kind of archiving this record keeping is something that's been part of the sort of suffrage feminist movement for a long time yeah it has in fact when sylvia pankhurst um opened her east end shop for women on the bow road she um included a library there so that local women could go and educate themselves so right from these iconic origins of the uk feminist movement libraries and archiving and accessing materials has always been key and there is um i visited a couple of years ago now i think the women's library which is now i think it's now part of the london school of economics but that that's more of it's not really a space it's more of an archive so lots of the the personal papers of pankhurst and various sort of early 20th century people sit in that archive but they haven't it doesn't it didn't strike me anyways they haven't been collecting throughout the 20th century. It feels very much like one moment. Yeah, and there are definitely archives in other places that keep these kind of... Um, Harvard have a history archive called the Schlesinger, which is women's history in America, but it's not got this contemporary material. Mm. Um, and you're right, it's also not a kind of space where you can come for discussion and debate as such. Although I know the Women's Library still makes plenty of people quite angry, as it is. Yes, well there's a lot of controversy <laughs> there about how it's moved around and how it's been funded and and, uh, and I think actually quite a um, a sort of sad political story in the sense that it's it's been passed between different institutions and different buildings as people have lost their funding to run it and so on. But anyway, it is now at the LSE and it is now accessible. And you should go to it. <laughs> you should go to it. But um, the Feminist Library, as you say, is sort of going a bit beyond that and reaching out into other things and is running these salons. You went to one, um, am I right in saying about Batgirl? It was probably about Batgirl. So there's an um, uh, academic and artist or comic creator um, called Will Brooker who created this comic about a feminist superhero whose superpower is reading. And he works on Batgirl and the fact that she was, I think, a librarian. Um, so they took this and built a whole salon around comics and feminist storytelling. And it was incredible. You know, you walked in and there were women of all ages and children running around and old second wave feminists sat drawing comics about their lives. It was a fantastic event. Um, and they're going to do a series of salons. So the next one is this weekend. If you're in London, you should go to it on feminism and fairy tales. So continuing that storytelling theme. It sounds fabulous. Yeah. Thanks very much, Stephanie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Caroline Crampton. Our producer today was Anna Leskovich. 
Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and you can find more details and all our back episodes on newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Mm-hmm.